In the winter of 2009, Michael Andrew Frizzell sat down with Luke Burbank and Jen Anders of the nighttime radio show Too Beautiful to Live. That interview has now become one of the most popular segments in TBTL history. Nine years later, Mike now has a podcast about TBTL. In order to cash in on some sweet download numbers, and also because we're hella lazy this time of year, we're repackaging these episodes with brand new material. Today is episode one. I'm your host, Christy, out here in the Big Apple of Linwood, Washington. And today, my co-host and guest is coming from the Windy City, Kyle, Texas, Mike Frizzell. Hello, Mike. Hey, you don't even know how true that is. It's so fucking windy here. <laughs> I was thinking because you talk a lot. Yeah, that's true. Hot wind <laughs> across Hot the plains of Texas. Everywhere. All right, Mike. So we are about to embark on a five-part series, which is basically just taking a five-part series that you already recorded um, with Jen and Luke um, in January of 2009, as I said, and we're going to put new material on it where I interview you. We interview a character in your life that you either talk about during that interview or was of that time that you discuss in, in that. So today is how it all began. Where, where did this, how did this start? So right now we're going to start the first episode in 2009 when Mike sat down with Jen and Luke. I hear a voice It's faint and weak Two pink pills To fall asleep uh, Tonight we are going to kick off a series of interviews um, with someone who's gone through some experiences uh, that I'd wager very few of you out there in listener land uh, have gone through. And believe me, you probably wouldn't want to. Uh, the person we're going to be talking to was living a uh, a pretty normal life, which came totally unraveled uh, when he found himself addicted to prescription drugs, uh, which led him to robbing a bank, which led him to robbing a bunch more, which ended up with him on the FBI's most wanted list. He ended up leaving his family, hiding from the cops for months on end, nearly committing suicide at one point. Um, eventually, he ended up in federal prison where he served five years. And the guy who went through all this is a 10. In fact, he might be the most dedicated listener uh, we have. He met his fiance, Emily and Austin, through TBTL. Uh, yes, Drew McFrizz. Uh, very familiar to any of you regular listeners out there is the guy that I'm talking about. His real name is Mike Frizzell. He's 43 years old. He works in management for a company that owns restaurants. Um, and tonight and throughout this week, uh, for the first time ever in this kind of public setting, he's going to tell us his story. So, Mike Frizzell, welcome to TBTL. Thank you for having me, Luke. Um, are are you worried at all that you're going to get in some kind of trouble because you're using your real name on this radio show? Do people in your life, most of them know this story? A lot of them do know. Uh, they're probably a lot of the people that I work with do not know. Um, most of the people I'm, uh, engaged with casually, not engaged with like Emily, Emily, first yeah. knows, but, sure. uh, most people I know casually probably don't know. Uh, I feel like I have done enough over the last 10 plus years 
since uh, I have, was released from prison. In fact, the, the five years before that, turning myself in and all that, that I've proven myself to the point where this isn't going to change anyone's opinion of me. They, they know who I am now. And who I was at that point in my life is not as important uh, to most people as who I am now. Why did you decide that you're ready to have all these people know this part of your life, that you were a bank robber, that you were in federal prison? Well, I think uh, I I always did want to come forward and talk about it. I always did want to uh, write about it, and I am writing about it as well. But I feel like going through those kind of experiences and doing – the 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 things that I did I did a lot of not nice things uh, I need to put some distance between myself and those things and also uh, put some good deeds in between those things I think if I I was either not going to talk about it at all or I was going to talk about it only after an interval where I've been proving myself as a human mm-hmm. being yeah well let's start at the at the very beginning a very good place to start um, you were a kind of completely normal college student and you hurt your knee playing basketball and what happened? Well, I was, yeah, a fairly normal college student. I was, uh, in a fraternity. I was, uh, I was broadcast major by the way. And I can hear that in your voice. (laughs) I wasn't a very good broadcast major, (laughs) but, uh, I played a lot of sports, of course, you know, uh, being in a fraternity, had an active social life, did a lot of dating. Um, and one day, uh, I was playing in a, in a basketball game. We played a heck of a lot of basketball. We played under not only our own names, uh, but we would get, uh, cards from other, uh, students and we'd play in several leagues under several different aliases. So I guess it was only a matter of time until you get injured when you're playing pretty much around the clock and not going to class. I dislocated my uh my knee, my right knee, and it was the first serious injury that I'd ever had and I went to an orthopedist and they uh they said the swelling was was too bad to make a diagnosis, but of course they wrote, wrote me a prescription and told me to come back in a few days and I'd never taken anything stronger than an aspirin and really hadn't taken many of of those type of drugs either. I got the prescription filled and I went uh, back to my room and I was going to do a little bit of studying, which is amazing because I really wasn't, wasn't that big on the studying, but I was going to do a little bit of studying and then we were going to go out. It was a Thursday night. And so I took a couple of these pills, uh, cause my knee really was bothering me a lot. Do you remember what the actual pill was? Uh, I don't remember exactly which which it was. It was an opioid, which, you know, belongs to that general family of painkillers. And, and most people's reaction to that kind of drug is, works across the whole spectrum of drugs. And it could have been, could have been a Percocet, could have been yeah. a Viking, who knows, but yeah. uh, I took them. And about 15 minutes after I took, took them, a feeling came over me, uh, that gave me this, awesome sense of self-satisfaction and security. And people that knew me at the time thought that I was a confident person and, and I, I did, did fine in almost every aspect of life, but I didn't feel that great about it. You know, I was always worried about how people, you know, were, were perceiving me and I was, you know, I had a hard time sleeping at night. Uh, I was just that kind of a nervous type person. It didn't really come across, I don't think, but but I was that type of person. And these pills immediately just took that feeling out of my body. Um, 
the way I reacted to the pills too is as soon as I got that feeling and as soon as I realized how the pills made me feel, I'd never taken another, uh, pain pill for pain the rest of my life. I took those pills and saved them for, for what would become social situations. Um, I, I figured I can take the pain, but these things are, are too special to be. So to even be if you pain. had an incredibly painful situation that you were prescribed medicine for, you were like, you just got a, a leather belt and bit down so that later on you could have it for the um, Gamfi mixer. Right. And right. it was really love at first. Oh, sight. yeah, absolutely. There was no question in my mind that, that uh, I, I needed to have a relationship with, with this drug. Uh, I, in high school and in college, I was drinking like everybody else, but, uh, you know, that, and, and of course that provides you with a false sense of security, but, uh, the drugs, the opioids in particular allow you to have that sense of security without the outward signs of drunkenness. You know, you're not the obnoxious person. You're just a confident guy. You're just feeling good about yourself. Um, I mean, eventually when you start taking enough of them, they will cloud your brain completely to the point where you're not functional. But on the ride up to that point, you know, it's a pretty sweet ride. And for me, I, I ran on that ride a couple times. Uh, and it does take a while to get to the point where they actually are hurting you and hurting your function because they're, they're so wonderful right away. And you don't really realize that at some point you're going to cross over into a territory where they're, you know, they go from helping you to hurting you a lot. What was the progression like in your life? You're in college you now have found these pills that make you feel more comfortable on the inside and you're using them as a, a kind of personality aid or whatever. Did you start hoarding pills? Did you start making fake prescriptions? Did you graduate from college? Like, how did your life sort of go on? Well, fortunately or unfortunately, right after that, I started getting injured on a regular basis. <laughs> Not on purpose. <laughs> but Just because you were high all the time. <laughs> Falling down. Yeah. Uh, no, I dislocated the same knee again uh, shortly afterwards. Within the same time period, I, I tore a quadricep. Uh, also, I was involved in a really serious car accident, uh, which uh, ended up with the van that we were in rolling over several times and ending up um, on my leg. So my leg was crushed in the accident. And uh, the sick the sick thing about that, is my leg was crushed and I'm sitting there at the accident site and these guys have lifted the van off my leg and I'm sitting on a log watching them clean up the accident site and I'm not thinking uh, how bad my leg hurts or or what are the repercussions of this leg injury. I'm thinking, score. This is, I'm going to have pills for months and months and months. I might be able to get, you know, a lifetime supply of painkillers out of this. So the the injuries kept happening. And I was, uh, controlled substances weren't as tightly monitored in those days because we're talking about, I don't know if you mentioned this, but we're talking about the late 80s, mm -hmm. early 90s, and the systems were not as stringent in, in the state of Washington, uh, taking care of the, the pharmacies and the controlled substances. So you could work a number of doctors at a time. All you had to have was the, the requisite injury. I mean, a lot of people go and complain about their back or their neck or something. I had some real injuries. Um, so but I never had to do that. You claim any of that on insurance. So you were just coming up with cash for it. I could claim, you can claim one set of, uh, -huh. uh <laughs> legitimately on insurance, but, but everything else you did beyond that, you had to pay, uh, cash for it. And I was working most of the time. Uh, my, 
my uh, dad was paying for my school, but I had a job and paid um, paid for my quote unquote expenses, of which you know prescription drugs were one. Were you keeping it together in terms of the outward appearances of your life? Because you know you get a year into it or two years into it, and you're probably taking more and more of these prescription drugs every day. Were you still functioning like a normal person, meeting people, socializing, having fun, or did you start to get that look in your eye of being like a pill popper? It for about the first year. Uh, things went pretty darn well. I was using them for, as you mentioned, social situations, family situations, you know, any, anything that where I would have normally been uncomfortable, I was using them for that. And I wasn't consistently, um, I wasn't using every day and I wasn't using every hour of every day. That started to r- roll up on me about the year mark and I started to need them every day. And that was right about the time that I was graduating from college. So I did get that accomplished. I struggled across that finish line. Um, but it was, it was really, it was really starting to get to me. And then it really did affect my post college life. After I graduated, I had a really hard time. It's hard enough finding a job in broadcasting, especially I was trying to get into television. Those jobs are very scarce and there's a million people going for them. And the pills were sort of sucking away my motivation and my clarity at a time when I needed to be really on top of things. So my first year or so post-college was was really bad. I was sort of spiraling down, and I was drinking a lot, too. Did you think, I have a major problem here, this is getting out of control, or did it just feel like normal life to you? I, th- I think when you're caught up in the addiction, you're just thinking about... Uh, you know, maybe I can get a couple things done tomorrow, but I definitely need to get high. You know, maybe I can get a couple tapes out. Maybe I can talk to a couple program directors. If if it doesn't interrupt my ultimate plan to get high. Right. Wow. Um, we're uh, I was I say wow because what you describe with prescription drugs is my exact approach to sleep. I'm not trying to be glib. Like I think to myself, maybe I'll work out today. Maybe I'll put together that uh, you know that write that great screenplay, but I need to get a nap in and nothing is going to stop the nap from happening. I mm-hmm. guess that's a slightly less pernicious addiction to have. I'd love to have that addiction. I can't sleep. That's my problem. Do you, we're jumping forward a little bit in time, but do you, um, like right now we're doing a radio interview about, about this really serious stuff that happened in your life. Does some part of you wish that you had a few Percocet to take the edge off or are you past that as far as something that you desire? Well, it's funny that this should come up now because I, I know I said I, I had never taken those drugs for pain since that first day, but that, in fact, is a lie because I just had shoulder surgery about four or five weeks oh, yeah. ago, and I did take some uh, prescription uh, opioids, and uh, did did not re-trigger the addiction. In fact, I didn't even get through the whole prescription and threw most of it out. Was that a really, really tough call for you to, to take those or not? A, a lot of people were really concerned for me, but I just... Felt like I'm so far past it now, and I'd I'd been I'd been through what I had to go through to get where I am, and it just they didn't really have much of an effect on me. They did not have the same effect that they did originally. It, so. so it wasn't euphoric or relaxing or whatever that thing was that it did for you before. No, I felt slightly nauseous and <laughs> wow, and uh, they relieved a little bit of pain, but no more than probably no more than taking an extra Sudafed would have done. All right, so so Mike, you're you're looking for a job. Uh, you're you're in the throes of being addicted to these prescription uh, medications, and then 
you how did you end up in Florida and what was the scene there for you? Well, I was uh, doing odd jobs while I was looking for a job in broadcasting. I was doing things like um, security jobs, uh, temporary jobs, things like that, just to get me, you know, through the day financially. And uh, I was really, really drifting. What uh, what the plan was, and I think every addict at at some point tries this: a change of venue is going to do it for me. Uh, I decided that I was going to go to graduate school, so I applied to some graduate schools, one of them being the University of Florida in Gainesville, and I was accepted there. And decided in August, after being out of school for uh, about eight months, I was going to go back in in the fall in August in Florida. So I moved down there and and as also most addicts will tell you you can you can run wherever you want but you'll always be there when you get there. So uh I was me in Florida but I did make a a real effort. I still had a few pills left when I got to Florida. Uh, my friend uh, Bill picked me up at the airport and and kept me at his place for a few days while um, he didn't know anything about the addiction. I, nobody did, but uh, we hung out in Orlando for a few days, and then he drove me up to Gainesville uh, just as I was running out of pills. I was in my apartment in Gainesville the first night, and it was my first night that I hadn't had any pills in over a year, and it was a really rough night. The electricity hadn't been turned on yet. It's August in Florida, and I'm sweating through the mattress for a number of reasons. You know, uh, I am officially kicking these drugs for the first time and it's, it's hot and I don't really, I'm not really comfortable where I am yet. I mean, I was hallucinating and then waking up in a place where I've never been before. It was a really rough first week. I did kick though for about a month and a half in Florida. That was the only time until until uh, later on when I decided to turn myself in that I was able to kick for any any real length of time. What's it physically feel like when those drugs are leaving your body? Is it like your skin hurts? People talk about going cold turkey and how painful it is, but I've never understood what the physical manifestation of that actually is. It totally is. an It's an all-over body pain and experience. Some people experience uh, itching or, or skin hurting. That, me, not so much. I, I experienced a lot of nausea, and to me, the worst part of it was hallucinations. I had horrible hallucinations. One, The one that I remember the most that happened consistently is lie, being lying down in a graveyard and not being able to stand up and having the hands come up out of the graves trying to pull me, Jeez. Pull me in. That's the one that I remember the most. But you were. This wasn't a dream. This was a hallucination. So yeah. you were awake, but you thought this was happening. I was awake and I couldn't move. You know, uh, I, I think we've all had that experience where we're in some sort of state where you're lying in your bed and you uh-huh. and you you want to wake up yeah. and you can't wake up. You can't move. Well, you managed to uh, kick, and then your your life kind of picks up a little bit. And you got into a relationship, a really serious relationship. You ended up getting married, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the person that you married had a, had a child uh, who you kind of took on as your own. Yes. Um, were you like then back on doing the prescription drugs and was that making that kind of family dynamic really hard for you to keep it together? Yeah, a little bit before I met my now ex-wife, uh, I had gotten back 
doing the pills. And I wasn't very deep in the addiction in the early parts of our relationship, but as the months progressed, it took its regular course uh, because you get, you have to up your dosages on those type of drugs pretty quickly to, to keep getting the same high. So I ramped up fairly quickly and I was, uh, pretty deep in by the time we actually got married. And then I actually did quit my job at the time we got married because I hadn't been at the job long enough to get the time off for a honeymoon. So I just thought, okay, well, when I get back to Florida, I'm going to get another job. And I did try and I did get a couple jobs, but I never was able to hold down a job again at that point. Which, which led to your great scheme of grand, the grandest larceny. Yes. I don't know actually if bank robbing is the, no. Bernie Madoff is way above bank robbing <laughs> still at this point. He takes the cake right now, but you did, uh, you kind of, uh, eventually turn to, you know, robbing banks. I knew a bit of, of Drew's story through mutual friends years and years ago. Uh, a friend of mine named Bill used to get these letters from a friend of his who was in prison and he would read them to me out loud. This was in the days of typed letters. And, uh, he would, um, you know, I would crack up at these letters and it turned out that those were written by Drew McFrizz long, long ago in a, in a federal penitentiary far, far away. I was very lucky to have a typewriter at the time because I was the unit clerk. I, I don't think anybody else had much access to a typewriter, but, uh, yeah, most of the communication at, at that point out of, out of prison would, was, would have just been chicken scratch, but mine must have looked really professional prison correspondence, right? It was, it was, it was intriguing. And so what an odd thing that all these years later, uh, you know, uh, Drew, Mike, you're, you're out and about and you have a completely normal and in fact exemplary life. And I happen to have a radio show. So our paths crossed again. We started talking about your story and, and you were gracious enough to say, look, I want to come on and tell everybody about this stuff that happened to me in my life. So here it is. Uh, when we left off, uh, you were living in Florida. You were, you were married, um, with a, with a stepchild, uh, but you were having a hard time because of your addiction to prescription drugs, getting normal jobs, keeping normal jobs, making your life, uh, just kind of work out. When did you first have the thought, maybe the answer to this is robbing a bank? My ex-wife enjoyed watching a show called Unsolved Mysteries. And I, I, I don't know if everybody has seen this show. Robert Stack, oh, yes. Robert Stack standing in the middle of a dark wooded area, right? In the a music is so awesome. You just know nothing good's going to happen <laughs> when you hear that music. There's a bunch of villains just around the corner. So, uh, she used to love that show and, and I would sit through it with her for comedy's sake. I mean, I thought it was a very funny show, but, uh, I, and I was in a haze, of course. I was in a lot of times in this drug induced haze, but they didn't really know me any differently. And you slip into it so slowly that your family doesn't really notice that uh, you're slipping by a small degree every day. Plus, you can always say, my leg was crushed in an accident. It still hurts. No, I don't mean that sarcastically. Yeah, yeah. Like when you have a major injury or injuries, no one else can know how much pain someone else is in. So there's always a kind of reasonable excuse for why you would need to take meds, right? Right. And you can you can take a look at, at my leg and I could just point to it and say, there's the holes where the van was through my leg. You know? yeah. It does seem, though, that what you're describing is that you fundamentally changed as a person. And so your family must have been 
quite sad about that. I mean, they must have noticed that you were a different guy than the kid they sent to college. Well, I was... Uh... Your, your parents and stuff you're talking yeah. about, not, yeah. not his yeah. ex-wife. If I, if I can go back to uh, junior high, high school, or whatever, I was the last of three kids. My my brother and sister are, are five years and ten years older, respectively. And my parents divorced when I was uh, about 12 or 13. And at that time, I was given the choice of, of who to live with. And it probably wasn't great that I was given that choice because I, I chose my dad but only because of the freedoms it was going to allow me because he spent a lot of his time, at least half of his time, out of town for his job. So from a very early age, I was making a lot of decisions about my life that I shouldn't have been making. Sometimes I made good decisions, sometimes I made bad, but they shouldn't have been my decisions. So I I had a history. By the time I was in, in graduate school at this point, I had a, a long history of uh, autonomy, I guess, and I don't think that anybody was surprised at any any poor decisions that I'd made or any laziness that I'd exhibited because, you know, I, I got through high school and college just based on, um, I don't know, I just skated through. And and no disrespect to the UW. I know Luke's, yeah. Luke's a, a graduate too, sure. and, and it is it is a good school, but I barely got in and I barely got out. Mm-hmm. So you get what you want to out of high school and college, and I didn't get that much out of it because I, I was a slacker. And I don't think anybody was really that surprised that that my life was just sort of slugging along. Mm-hmm. Slugging along, watching Unsolved Mysteries with your <laughs> sitting, sitting on the couch watching Unsolved Mysteries, yes. Uh, and at the time, I think that I was still probably going to some crappy job in Florida. I, I, I worked at a radio station in Florida called WYGC Gator Country <laughs> and, uh, did a little bit of everything, uh, for them, sold ads, road ads, you know, um, did some, uh, board op work. And that's probably the job I was at at the time when we were watching Unsolved Mysteries. And, and I knew I was slipping and I knew I wasn't going to be able to work for very much longer unless I quit drugs. And, and I remembered at this point how hard it was to quit. So I wasn't ready to quit. So we're watching Unsolved Mysteries. And Robert Stack is talking about uh, this particular guy who had robbed some banks. And what he did was he just put a note on the counter that said he had a gun, and they give him the money, and he walks out of there. And I don't know if I did one of those, you know, cartoon double takes or triple takes. What? (laughs) They just give you the money? You don't have to really do anything. And it was an unsolved mystery. <laughs> so they hadn't caught the guy. <laughs> That's right there in the title. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so you, it had never occurred to you that robbing a bank was as easy as it was described in, on this TV show. Right. You watch. Well, I mean, in point break, it's a real undertaking. You know, you need a lot of henchmen and masks. masks. Right. And you're going to get shot in the shoulder because right. that happens every time. Every time. Yeah. <laughs> There's hostages. But so you actually had this thought I, where you, you, you watched that Unsolved Mysteries and you thought to yourselves, I could do that. That yeah. looks doable. It did. Uh, I guess, I guess there were, there's, there was some, something missing in me at the time, you know, that made me a sociopath of some sort that would just look at that and go, Oh, nobody's getting hurt. Oh, I can do that. I'll just do that. I, well, I mean, I don't want to get into the, I'm, there's obviously it's a very immoral thing to rob a bank, but it's also something that everyone has 
because it's it is such a iconic American crime that I think everyone has imagined themselves in that position and what they would do. And it's almost like because you think the money's insured or you see all the movies where the people that rob the banks are kind of the uh, you know they're 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 kind of a, a sympathetic figure. It really. I mean, I can see you thinking no one's going to get hurt. I can just do it. That's kind of – I think a lot of people have that thought. Well, and it didn't happen at that moment that I decided to rob a bank, but it just put it in my mind as a as a last-ditch possibility. I mean, if things get really, really bad, Robert Stack has showed me the way. You know, That's well, my way off of rock bottom if I happen to hit that rock bottom. I was still going to work. So how did the rock bottom come? I was – pretty bad at my job and you know gator country <laughs> music wasn't my favorite but i was trying to sell i was trying to sell and uh wasn't into it uh you know when you're not into your job you're not going to be very good at it and then uh after after that job there were a couple more jobs uh probably one other radio station and then um some other menial jobs and this whole thing was kind of rolling around in my head uh that I needed I needed more money obviously cuz now I had this family and my my wife was getting her MBA and she had a very like a 2 hour a day job and of course you have the the daughter and she's got daycare and and of course I've got now what is an ever increasing addiction to prescription drugs which is costing uh 30 to 50 dollars a day at that point and are you explaining that missing amount of money as like getting lunch every day, or how do you explain that to your wife? That's a good question. That's so long in the past that I I can't give you exact specifics on that. But you came up with something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I well, like an a, any addict, yeah, you've got a million of them. You know. Yep. Uh, oh, I had to pay this bill, or I had to I had to get that. I was I bought lunch. You know, for the, everyone. Yeah, for everyone. In Gator like, Country. Yeah, in, at eighty in eighty nine, fifty dollar lunch in Gator Country. That's like pretty. That's that's expensive. That was. But you you man you you managed to kind of keep. I mean, did your ex wife have suspicions at that point that your the amount of prescription drugs you were taking was made you an addict or was out of control? No, she um. She knew that that I I drank, especially if I went on the road, I would drink a lot. But I didn't drink a lot at home. And I completely hid the prescription drugs from her. She she never had any idea that I was doing those. Um, and and one of the reasons originally wasn't just to hide my addiction from her, so I didn't want her taking any of the pills. Because you wanted them for yourself, right? You know, I thought, oh well, she's just going to get a headache and she's going to steal two of my pills. So that can't happen. Wow. So that was not part of the vows <laughs> when, you know, to, to, to share and hold and all that stuff. No, more like to obfuscate and to keep her away from my pills. Don't touch my Vicodin. That was in there. <laughs> yeah. We wrote our own vows. Um, when did you, uh, if, if the, if the watching of uh, Unsolved Mysteries was the first thought of that could be my, that's my plan Z. That's like if everything doesn't work out, when did it go from being this background thought to, I am actually going to rob a bank in two days. The it wasn't exactly clear. Uh, what what happened was I believe I lost my last job or I just didn't go. I think it was some sort of car dealership thing where I was going to go sell cars or something. 
And I went for a couple of days and then I just stopped going. And I used that car dealership job as the first jumping off point for a lie to my wife about having a job. I told her that, that they'd given me some job in fleet sales and that I would be doing some traveling uh, just around the state, not, not long plane trips. I, I told her that and then I told her my first trip was I had to go pick up a car in Jacksonville. So a car for my personal use. So I took a bus to Jacksonville and actually I'll go back a little bit. Before I took the bus to Jacksonville, I stole uh, some plates off of a car and I put them in. Where my, was the car? It was somewhere in Gainesville. I think it was at my old apartment complex. So you had, you got a screwdriver mm -hmm. and you went out and because what I think is interesting about this is that it doesn't sound like um, this was, you were driving down the road and you were starting to Jones for something, pills, and then you went, you veered into a bank and ran in there. No. There was, this was a lot of steps to this whole process. Yes. You have to, at some point, it's cold, it's the morning time, maybe you get up with a screwdriver, you put on some sweats, and you undo someone's plates mm -hmm. in a random parking lot, and then, uh, you make up a lie about a job you've got so that will free up. So this was, there was, this was involved even before it started. Right. I, I think it was probably when I was coming home from that, from, not actually going to the job for the first time, not actually going to work. I just made the decision that I was going to be a criminal, I guess. And and the first step was I needed I needed a car. Uh we had two cars but one of them was complete junk and wouldn't run and she needed a car so the other car was hers. So if I was going to do any 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 criminal needs a getaway car. You know, you can't call a cab, you can't go get a bus, that's not going to work out. So I decided that I needed to get a car and part of my story, I've just folded it into my story of now I am a car salesman, so they're going to give me a car. And I, so I stole those plates and I took the bus uh, to Jacksonville and I got on a local bus there and went to the auto row in Jacksonville. And my original plan was to uh, ask to take a test drive of a car and hopefully, you know, not have the, the salesman ride along and just drive off and change the plate. And I went to a couple of dealerships and uh, talked talked about taking test drives. And, and each time the guy was like wanting to jump in the car. And I was like, ah, I changed my mind. Changed my mind. So, so you didn't go on an awkward test drive <laughs> that you had no intention of being on just to just just because you see, that's what I would have done. This is why I'd be a terrible criminal. <laughs> I'd still be on test drives somewhere in Tallahassee asking about the mileage. Yeah. Right. I mean, and I could have done something like, you is know, that new car sent? <laughs> good in here. I could have done something like tell the guy that that I had a gun and force him out of the car or something, but I wasn't interested or that hardcore. I, yeah. I didn't really want to be a dangerous criminal, and right. I wasn't, in fact. So uh, I was a little confused, and I, I was going uh, between a Toyota dealership and I think a Ford dealership. I was just sort of walking from one property to the other, and I was walking by the service department at the Ford dealership, and there was a uh, 1988 Ford Aerostar minivan, which was a pretty new car at the time. It was only about a year year old two years old maybe and it was just uh, sitting there running outside the service department obviously you know they'd fixed it or something there's some minor repair done and they had it running out there and i just jumped in that van and i drove away 
Did you speed away or did you drive I drove regularly? very, very carefully. In fact, all, through all my crimes, I was only one traffic stop away from being arrested for sure. everything that I did my whole life. So, so I drove very carefully away. I got on the freeway, which was right there, and I uh, drove. I was driving to Gainesville, but I stopped at a pretty quickly in a town called Stark, which is where the um, maximum security prison is in Florida. I think it's where they fried Bundy. Foreshadowing is what they would call <laughs> if this was a novel. I stopped in Stark and I changed the plate uh, on the on the van to this plate that I'd stolen from Gainesville earlier, just in case. And you know, any state police were looking for the van with that particular plate, they would be discouraged by. By you know they wouldn't they wouldn't see the the stolen van plate. Mm-hmm. they might see a stolen plate but they wouldn't know it right. unless they did the computer and all right that stuff. which they would have no reason to run because it yeah. wasn't the right van yeah. so did you have a feeling as you drove off into the van like this is my life is is irrevocably changed because this was like the first major aside from stealing those plates this was the first big crime you'd ever done right right well I was. Clouded, of course, because I was high and I was pretty proud of myself actually for pulling it off for, and, and I don't know. I, I guess I would have been prouder of myself if I'd have actually stolen a car like a real car thief instead of just getting in, getting into a car that was already running and driving off, which you could do in front of any 7-Eleven, I guess, you know, <laughs> when someone goes in to get a cup of coffee. But, uh, I was proud that I was, I was bringing home, uh, Essentially, a brand new car mm-hmm. for my family. You know, it, it's a it's twisted, but but it's very true. And I and I also knew that now I had the the means to to get started and and uh, better provide for my family and better provide for my addiction. So it's you know not my proudest moment, but but in the moment, I didn't feel bad. Yeah. Um. So you drove back home with this new van and n- now a sense that you could probably begin your, your life as a, as a, you know, did you have, did you think bank robber at this time or were you just thinking life of crime that will probably involve a minivan? <laughs> I was going to steal soccer equipment. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> no, I had, uh, I planned that I was going to, Rob a bank and see how it went. And I, I'd already, uh, decided which one, uh, that I was going to rob. There was a bank in Tampa that was not far from where my ex-wife's aunt lived. And it was right, right on this major road and, and it was right by the freeway. And there were places to park behind it where that you couldn't see from the bank. I'd already given all this a lot of thought. Uh, and, and we'd driven, We'd driven by that bank a few times, and I remember looking in there thinking, is there a guard in there? You know, I didn't see one. So I had an idea that once I had the means for a getaway, that was that was where I was going to go. So you had the car, you had the bank picked out, and now it was just a matter of going and, and doing it, which brings us to the end <laughs> of this interview, quite conveniently so. Okay, Mike, now is the segment everybody loves. Christy has questions. Christy always has questions. <laughs> I Seriously, the I've listened to these episodes cr- producing this show at least six times each, 
And each time I listen, I have more questions. I just have a spreadsheet of just running questions. And Mike <laughs> goes through and highlights and throws them out, basically, is what, what's uh, been happening. <laughs> so these are the Mike-approved questions for right. episode one. What's going to make me look the coolest? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Mike, do you still have social anxiety? Uh, to some extent, I do. Uh, what I do have more than I had back then is confidence because when you have social anxiety, you sometimes think that you're not going to be able to handle situations. Well, I now know that I can handle almost any social situation. Well, I still don't like it. Mm -hmm. It's still like, I, I have some dread sometimes going into social situations, but now I have confidence. So there, um, there's not as much need to like, do some treatment in advance or to make sure that we're going to get, our, is there going to be alcohol there or yeah. whatever? And obviously, you know, I don't, I don't need to take any pills or whatever. So uh, the ability, also the ability as an adult to just suck it up. I mean, <laughs> it'll all be over in a couple hours, so no big deal. And there's also some element of just realizing that, why would these people invite me to their house if they didn't like me? Mm -hmm. So just be yourself. So do you, do that, you that stuff has faded away a little bit. Do you attribute that to being getting really, really old or um, the everything you went through being in prison or just you've learned to deal with it in your own way or all? Yeah, all of those things mm -hmm. because... Um, I mean, because you are really, really old. Yeah, super old. And think think about uh think about turning yourself in and going to prison and the anxiety that oh. you're dealing with there. Um and then compare that to going out to dinner with one of Emily's friends, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, the way back in the day going out with my girlfriend or my wife's friend might have given me enough anxiety to <clears throat> want to be high, but now it's yeah. like uh, yeah, I think I can handle it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when you first started, you had, we heard about, you had a um, basketball injury and you, you hurt your knee and then you said you took the first one and then you never once took a pain pill for pain. Yeah. At least until after right, until, prison and yeah, everything. Until yeah. I actually had some surgeries <laughs> and some pain later on in right. life when I wasn't addicted to them. Right. Yeah. So how many were you taking a day at first? Uh, I would only take one at first and then two at the most for the first few months to six months because I wasn't taking them every day. And um, if you're not taking them every day, you don't start building up the tolerance. a tolerance for them. So, um, yeah, that was uh, – it was, it was just after I started to switch it into – you know, um, this is an every night thing or uh, three or four times a week thing that I started to take a few more, like three or four at a time just to get the same effect that I used to get from one or two. And where would you, where would you get these from? Would you just do the um, drug seeking through a hospital? Well, uh, I had insurance through my dad and I had insurance. I bought the insurance through the UW so I could get two prescriptions running. Mm -hmm. Okay. And at first and for 
least a long time, that was enough to keep me stocked. Mm -hmm. I just don't, I mean, cause you know, everyone has, has their guy that's a pot dealer. I just don't yeah. see like, Hey, where do I get some oxy? You know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't really need to have a guy until a lot later. And then, you know, I would find, I would find someone who had, um, who had a lot and I would come up with enough money to mm -hmm. take care of myself for a long time. I see. Okay. So it wasn't like daily where I was like, oh man, where am I getting my pills today? I, you know, uh, if most, most, uh, prescription drug addicts can tell you when they start hearing the rattle, <laughs> you know, when they shake their pill, then it's time to get to work <laughs> on, on <laughs> making sure you don't hear that rattle again right, for right. a long time. Okay. Um, you at some point decided you want to do a change of venue, which is very um, common with addicts. They think I'm yeah. going to move away. If I move away from my dealers and my friends You're that right. I get high right. with, if if I don't get high in this living room, I'll just never do it again. Why did right. you pick Florida? Uh, I applied to uh, several different grad schools. I remember, I think I applied to University of Utah, which I thought, you know, that's a clean <laughs> place <Yeah>. to live. <laughs> um I applied to a uh, university in Pennsylvania somewhere like Duquesne or somewhere, but it was too expensive. Um, there was one other and then there was university of Florida and it ended up that I got a, uh, a fellowship to, um, university of Florida. So some of my schooling was going to be paid for and it was also a state state school and it wasn't too expensive. Mm -hmm. So I ended up going there. And what were you going for? Uh, broadcast management. Did, um, did you ever finish that? I guess I don't know that part of the story. No, I did a year. I think it was a year out of a two year program and I was doing really well, but, um, it took a lot of concentration and I was also working full time. And then once I met my future wife, uh, you know, I was preoccupied with that and trying to provide for her and uh, our daughter because my wife was going for her master's. Uh, for she, she was going for her MBA and she ended up getting it. And you know, um, so I was trying to be a good husband and also, you know, I was getting pretty deep into my addiction and and my ability to concentrate beyond. A, few hours at a time was diminishing. And how did you meet her? Uh, we met because originally she went, um, actually she may have been in the MBA program from the beginning. And I, I just met her in one of my graduate school classes okay. and, uh, we, we worked on a project, I think, but even if we hadn't, I think we would have met because the, the class would go because we're graduate students. We would go out uh, to a bar after the class. It was a night class. And we went to this bar called the Purple Porpoise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Talk about a hookup joint, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we went out to this bar called the Purple Porpoise. And uh, she was really smart and funny. And I I liked her a lot. And I think I ended up asking her out. And, you know, uh, the rest is history. Bad history for her. <laughs> um, so in part of your story, you say that you went to Florida with the 
with the intent to quit and you actually did quit for a month and a half. What yeah. made you start up again? Because you already went through all the withdrawals and all the terribleness. Yeah, I did. And what the reason I ended up um, taking pills again was I got hurt playing basketball again there. <sighs> and, um, you know, they wrote the prescription. You know, I didn't say, don't write the prescription. They just wrote it, right? Mm -hmm. And it was, the prescription was just sitting there. And I had been invited. I was, I had my head down. I was working really hard because I was at grad school and I was working full time at this place that uh, made and um, fulfilled contact lens orders. I was like a guy on the phone or whatever. And I was working all day and going to school at night. And I was doing really well. Uh, but then, um, one of the girls at the place, the, the owner's daughter invited me to a, a football game watching party at her house and I liked her <laughs> and I was like, I want to get with this girl, you know? Um, it was like a UF Tennessee game and they were showing it on the big, on a big like screen in their backyard and, uh, and I was like, I like her and I want to, I want to do something. I want to make a move. Right. And then I fell back into the old thing. Like, uh, well, I'm going to get some pills and make sure that, you know, I'm relaxed and that this thing happens. Mm. Did it so happen? I, not telling. Uh, <laughs> well, I have to know if it was worth it. Your relapse. Whoa, worth it. Right. <laughs> so, well, did Oh, I will say I'll say that um once I saw her put mayonnaise on a hot dog, I was no longer interested. Deal breaker. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was a deal yeah. breaker for me. Uh so French dressing on pizza, killer. <laughs> well crusts, maybe, but <laughs> so that's what led led me back into doing it. And then, you know, just once I took those pills that night, I was back into it. Okay. Um so as part of it you said that before the f initial injury, you had not had so you had never had pain medication before in your life, just maybe no. a Tylenol. Um, yeah. So had you had issues with other drugs or alcohol, other addictions prior to this, or is it uh, just well, pills? Well, no, I, I I probably drank a lot for a high school student, and then mm -hmm. in college probably drank Thursday night through Saturday night. You know. I don't know that that was. But there's a difference between like even heavy or binge drink drinking and alcoholism. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so this is a question I have. I didn't even think about until I was listening to this. Did you have to do time for stealing that van? Was that on the sentence too? No, that wasn't because it wasn't a federal crime. <sighs> and uh, what the state of Florida would have had to do was to uh, extradite me and take me to Florida and try me for it. And that seems to be a lot more money yeah. to, to spend <laughs> than they probably would have been willing to. That's, that's my theory. Anyway, I was never yeah. charged with it. And that, and I was just like, yeah, if I were them, I probably wouldn't be that hot on that either right. because I had no prior convictions. So, and, and that, that, that felony happened before the bank robberies. Oh, okay. so, it might have even not been that much time to do. I can't believe you kept the van the entire time. I didn't keep it the entire time. I actually left it in Seattle. Oh, okay. And what yeah. did you take to to San Diego? Well, the Saturn that I bought for my wife, I took that. 
I see. Okay. But what weren't they looking for it? Uh yeah, but I switched the plates. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I was Come gonna on, say Christy. these these cops Have we are, learned nothing? Well, <laughs> we never know. I mean the, the FBO is literally at the the same game as you, not looking for you. <laughs> true, true. Yeah. All right. So next up we have an interview with Mike's friend Bill Radke. Hello, Bill. Thanks for coming on. Hi. Hi. Hi there, um, Christy. My pleasure. So my first question is, is always to the guest, how did you meet Mike? Mike and I met um, the summer before we started at the University of Washington. So yeah, I guess that would have been 83. I was transferring in from a sophomore. So it was for my sophomore year. And Mike was coming out of high school and we joined the same fraternity. And so we probably we met at, at at a rush party, as they're called, you know, a get together in the summer before we sort of settle down into this fraternity or that fraternity. Um, the first specific memory I have of Mike is later, though. It's at the beginning of the year before classes started. So we're in our fraternity. The pledge class is picking its officers, the president, secretary, treasurer. And I said I'd be treasurer. And each candidate had to tell the group about basically why I will, I'm not going to screw this up. You know, you should just mm -hmm. go ahead and let me do this, this job. And uh, what I remember is the other candidates being very casual about it. And I, but I wanted to make a really good impression. Uh, we barely knew each other. There's a bunch of guys who barely knew each other. So I stood up and I made this really earnest, you know, thought out, coherent pitch, you know, for Bill Radke, pledge class treasurer. And when I was finished talking, there was a pause and Mike said something like, anybody not voting for that guy? And and everybody laughed because he was so deadpan and confident and, and satirical at the same time. It was like, all right, that guy gave us more information than we needed, uh, but none of us are going to be better treasurer than him because we'd rather drink beer and have fun. And thank God there are people who take life too seriously. It was just all of that wrapped up into this like six words. And it wasn't mean. It wasn't mocking. It was sort of complimentary and yet ridiculing all wrapped up with this ironic cockiness. And that was, that's my very first memory of Mike Frizzell. And I was, I was, I must not have a great self image because I was much more impressed than I was insulted. I just thought he was funny and cool. <laughs> Mike, do you remember that? Uh, I do not, but uh, that doesn't, does it not sound like me? I mean, oh, yeah. I, I mean, he nailed you. Sarcastic, <laughs> but genuine, all wrapped up into one. <laughs> uh, there were um, there were other guys that, that can tell stories about that year, uh, and all of us just barely knowing each other, like 25 guys, I think, somewhere around there, just getting thrown together. I mean, my me and uh, my uh, acquaintance at the time, but would-be good friend, John Hedegaard, came in from the same high school, and we got to know each other over the summer before actually, you know, moving into the house. So there were two of us that were friends beforehand, but everyone else is pretty much strangers. And uh, there's a, there's a, another one of our brothers named uh, Mike Smith, who's been discussed on this show a few times before he's come up. And uh, I had gotten to know another one of the brothers named Wayne Barbie pretty well uh, in the, the days leading up to the, like the first day of class so I was comfortable with some of the guys, but Mike Smith, I didn't know very well. And he, he, he said it took him a long time to forgive the way I talked to Wayne, uh, in front of him <laughs> <laughs> because once I'm 
comfortable or familiar or whatever, I'm busting your balls. I mean, it's just yeah. going to happen, you know? And uh, I guess I busted Bill's balls before I even knew him, but uh, it was, I guess it was in a good way. Cause I mean, like I didn't want to be treasurer of the fucking <laughs> freshman right. class. Only, only this idiot Bill Radke would want to be, <laughs> he, I just, I wanted it way too much. And I was sort of immediately embarrassed, but I, but I had this thought like, Oh yeah, that's basically what's happening here. I was kind of I was approaching it this this way cuz I just wanted to be, I don't know, be liked or do something right for a change. And and then when Mike said that, I just realized, "Oh, that's how that's what this whole situation is actually like. It's kind of funny and it's you know, and I just like, "Oh, that's going to be that's a smart guy." I'm Well, and you were more mature than the rest of us cuz you had a year of college yeah. under your belt and yeah. you know, I so like more power to you. If you know how this shit works or can figure it out, <laughs> yeah. do it. So did you win? Yeah, that's about, what's that? Did you win? Uh, if winning, winning would be a, would, <laughs> would be a very glorified word for it. But, but people just looked around like, uh, did, does anyone else want to do that? Do, want to add up the numbers? Cause apparently you do. It was like, that was my, that was my glorious victory. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So then um, you guys were in this fraternity together for the, your whole career of, of school? I only lived there for a year. And, then, you know, I, I still I, – I stayed in touch with the guys, right, Mike? But I was I was gone in a year living off campus, and I would just come around every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. Did you come and live in in the summer maybe? Yeah, yeah, I did. I lived in the summer. That was the you know best time of all. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And were you part of this basketball crew that seemed to be playing basketball twenty four hours a day? Uh, Mike, but this must must be well established that that was another of my first impressions. Like, geez, the guy, he just like the jump shot, and he not only did not only did he have a the, a smooth jump shot and and hops, but he actually enjoyed rejecting. He enjoyed <laughs> stuffing the ball, and I I am I'm like a a. Just I can get up and down the court, um, but no, I I kind of stayed away from that because it was uh, not my thing, especially with first. Oh, you know, you just reminded me actually. I don't know if you remember this, Mike. I feel like I brought it up to you since, but I I didn't really I didn't have any. I'd never been on a team. I didn't really know what to do on the court. But I figured, well, one thing I can do is I'm going to play tough defense, which mm-hmm. I think is involves boxing you out like not i can put my yeah. body in between you and the basket and how can yeah. you score i don't know if that's you're, legal you're taller, or not you're taller than me too so yeah yeah and so i just kind of i tried to constantly you were the best offensive player so i thought if i can keep you from the basket i was just always kind of shoving into you and you would get really frustrated and, and yes. all the mockery all the ridicule and kind of irony you did it wordlessly with your body because it wasn't just like you shoved me like we're suddenly having a fight on the delt court you just it was just an exasperation you would start to to push me around it was just like yeah. this comical you were showing me how dumb i must have looked and how you know <laughs> when you got sick of me doing it yeah you were annoying as fuck bill because when you started putting yeah. out that effort um man that 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 got to me because it was effective and it kept me from being as good as I wanted to be. And I don't know if you remember me mocking. Uh, my main thing was uh, you you had you had one actual skill other than the hustle than the defensive hustle. You had a pretty good shot. 
Um, and, yeah. but it was a shot that you stepped into and you took, oh. to me, at least three steps to step into yeah. the shot without dribbling. Yeah. And it's not like I would call it and say that's traveling or whatever, but I would always point out that, uh, you know, wow, that, that shot, you know, you, you took a lot of steps into that shot. <laughs> Yeah, because I'd only played in my driveway ever and where I could I had a, a like a house rule where I could walk with the ball. Yeah. You're just walking, just holding the ball <laughs> leisurely and then just launch the shot. Just pretty good shot, you know. It's like yeah. um how about a, just a courtesy dribble on the way into that shot? How about that? <laughs> This is, but this is kind of the sick, like, the thing is that so far all we're talking about is, is you gently mocking me. And I, and all my memories of it was, was like tip of the hat was, was uh, that damn that, that the guy is it, like, we didn't really run a foul because I think I no. wasn't so, I wasn't like Smith and Hedegaard that would either get so run with you all the time, yes. nor, and play basketball all the time, nor would I get, you know, just uh, really super pissed off at you. It's just like, okay, that guy's. That guy's hilarious. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so a little bit darker of the questions. Did you know that Mike was struggling with addiction towards the end of college? That's when it started, right, Mike, your senior year? Uh, yeah, it was right around. Yeah, I think it was senior year when I um, started uh, taking the pills. I had no idea. I, I you know, again, I was maybe... I, and I don't remember having a conversation with anybody else about it either. I mean, Mike would get would occasionally get drunk at a party, but we were in a college fraternity. Um, he was also because he had a cool demeanor. Um, I don't I don't remember Mike being. I, I can I can kind of maybe remember him once or twice being red faced and you know kind of silly the way people mm -hmm. get. Um, but but not not he wasn't out of control guy so. I, I really didn't look at it that way. The only thing that I can remember now that, that, that raised a question for me at the time was um, sometimes I would go to Mike's room to, you know, let's play hoops, let's go to uh, taco time, let's whatever, um, and his door would be locked. And, and, you know, I'd knock on it and he would just, he would just say, go away. And, mm -hmm. and again, he, Mike is so deadpan that, I almost took it like, go away, dumb guy. Like, I, I, again, I almost, that was a, that was a Mike thing was just like, uh, the bill, the beer man, you know, shut up. Dumb guy was, was just this, I'm kind of annoyed at the dumb guys. And, and I didn't take it. It wasn't that it wasn't crazy where other people that'd be pretty, that would be rude. It'd be weird. Mike, I just thought was, um, just had enough of, uh, enough of the world. I want to be on his own, but there was, I got, but there was something that would stick in my head. Like I, if I would bang a couple times, if I'm in a good mood, maybe I'd try, come on, you know, try to get him out. And he, and it, it didn't, it just, he really wanted me to go away. He didn't want to say two words. And I don't know if that's what was going on for all I knew he was just studying, you know, yeah. but that that's the only memory I've got connected with that. I, I had no suspicion. I guess a fraternity is a good place to have an addiction if you want to hide it because people are usually drunk or high um or they can say they're in their room with a girl like it just yeah. is <laughs> it's it's like the the grizzly bear thing i only need to outrun you i, right. I don't you know <laughs> right. right so then mike um 
after graduation, decided to move to Florida. Did you have any contact with him while he was there? Well, I helped Mike move into his into his uh, apartment. Remember that, Mike? Absolutely. I remember that whole weekend because uh, I flew down there and it was arranged that you were going to um, pick me up at the airport in Orlando. And I stayed at your yours and Hugo's place for a few days. And uh, we had fun. We were partying and uh, you were dating some French girl at the time <laughs> and yeah. you were uh, hosting on the Orlando uh, public radio. You're doing, I think like morning edition or doing the local. Yeah, I was doing, uh, it, it was, yeah, it was a local like news magazine type of show in the, in the evening. And, uh, oh, and right, I've right. been there since that was my job out of college. And so, yeah, I helped Mike move, move in, in Gainesville. We hung out a little bit in Orlando. So that you, uh, uh, that was fun. I, I mean, uh, what I, my my worst memory of the of those few days was, I parked my suitcase right inside your front door, and um, ants invaded it, and I didn't <laughs> discover that till I got to Gainesville, which sucked. Because <laughs> now now I know every if you live in the South, ants are going to invade everything unless you're yeah uh, vigilant. But uh, I was I was on like my last few pills. And then after you dropped me off in Gainesville, that night was the first night. And this will be in the, you know, obviously is in the interview. Um, that night was when I was kicking for the first time because the reason I was moving to Florida was to get away from my addiction, get away from myself. And I held true to it for some period of time. Wow. Well, my my only, you know, other than our usual banter, which we could always do, um, I, the memory I have of the, of the weekend or so was not, was not that anything was, uh, wrong, but that conversation didn't, didn't flow. I mean, this is one of those lifetime moments, you know, I've, I've, I'm out of school. I got my, I'm, I'm, got my job employed in, in, in kind of what I wanted to do. And, and we we're all the way across the country from where we met and you're starting a new chapter. You're going to grad school and it's, you know, you think there'd be more interpersonal, more kind of deep talk about life and what we want. And I just remember it being, yeah, we bantered, but I don't remember it, us talking about much very deep. And, yeah. and I guess I could understand why. I was super worried because <laughs> I'd never yeah. kicked drugs before and I knew I was about to, and I was just really preoccupied with it for sure. And Did then- you ever, Mike, consider t- letting me in on on any of this when you were – when you were down there, or were you going to do this all by yourself? No, I never considered letting anyone in on anything. It was just yeah. not something that was in me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you ever consider rehab or was it just robbing banks or not having, you know, like oh, cold turkey? No, or... I never, I never considered rehab. Never. Okay. That's for quitters, right? Huh. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> So then um, Mike moves into Gainesville, and then did you guys correspond at all during this time? I remember, didn't um, didn't Dave Michael come out? And, yeah. and like, I, I seem to remember we hung out at Christmas time, but we, but that's, is that right? Yeah, Dave came out and we went to a, an Orlando Magic game. They were a brand new team oh, yeah. at the time down there. That's so right. So we watched Ronnie Cycli run up and down the floor futilely. <laughs> Right, right. Um, yeah, that was fun. I, I rented a Geo Metro 
and uh, pick Dave up at the Gainesville airport. You'll never forget that. <laughs> they didn't have a smaller car. <laughs> yeah, they didn't. Uh, could I get something worse? No, no, yeah. this is as bad as this is the worst car we have. Two giant men fitting into a Geo Metro. <laughs> oh, <laughs> God. In <Yeah>. Florida. <laughs> So then Mike But we did to, okay. to answer the question, I don't remember us, you know, I remember that, but I don't remember it was like, "Hey, we're in Florida now and I'm just going to call and see how your weekend's going, Mike." Yeah. We didn't talk, had that much contact. Yeah, I'm like on long distance phone calls at the time cost money, oh, yeah. so right. I, <laughs> that's, I, that's right. I mean, I didn't I didn't call anyone very much out of Florida, but uh the um but you know, Dave coming down was a special occasion, so we coordinated and got that done. Mm-hmm. And then Mike starts robbing banks, and then moves himself to Washington, robbing banks, and then flees and moves to San Diego. But no one knows where he is. When did you find out all of this was happening? Uh, again, I, I assume we can use his banter, throw his name around, even though I don't know if he wants to, uh, uh, to be identified, but our friend, our friend Dave told me about it. I, I had stayed in touch with Dave a little bit and, uh, he told me the story over the phone and, you know, as, uh, you, you know, the whole thing, what can you say except, except, you know, you gotta be kidding me. Uh, he's the one who filled me in. After Mike had already been caught, or when he was on the run? Um, uh, no, no, no. This is when he was on the run. The the oh. details I remember, and stop me or edit me if uh, this isn't okay. But I I just I remember the detail of a of a shoebox um, stashed in 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 Mike's wall or something that, that the FBI had shown up and that had been all pried away and and Mike. You know, and Mike was gone, and a few more details around that. But that's that was the story as it came to me. But you were never questioned if you knew where he was. No, nobody ever questioned me. I didn't get only when when Mike had turned himself in. So I'm I'm following this through our mutual friend Dave, who's in Southern California, um, and and Dave and Mike. Did you go to the same high school, Mike? You must have on the East Side. Yeah, we did. We both went to yeah. Interlake High School. Until I transferred out senior year. So yeah, Um, so he he was giving me the story, and eventually I I got contacted. uh, Mike Mike asked me for a a letter to the federal prison at Sheridan. That that's Mm -hmm. the that was my next contact with Mike or any kind of authority. Um. So Mike, I need to get this straight. So your friend that you've known for years. And lives in the same state where you started robbing banks was not questioned, but Charles Barkley was. <laughs> <laughs> Is that were, true? What were these yes, the Keystone uh, Cops and Barney Fife that were after you, or what? <laughs> well, I I guess they figured that uh, once I was on the loose with all this bank robbing money, that I was going to um, try to upgrade. My famous friends, you know, because Bill was only <laughs> kind of famous at the time. Right, right. So I was Ronnie Cycli like, famous. I was gonna like, you know, get to the club with Barkley and start making it rain there, and <laughs> I don't know. What's the Charles Barkley connection? Do I get to um, know about this? Yeah. Well, well, um, 
during the 1987 All-Star Game, you know how, Bill, when um, different broadcasting companies would come to town and they would be doing events like Husky Games or, in this case, the NBA All-Star Game, they would source the PAs from the broadcasting school? Right. Uh, so one of the gigs that I got, and Mike Mike was along on that one too, was CBS Sports. Um, the NBA All Star Game was in Seattle in 1987, and yeah, I remember. One of, one of my duties was just driving folks around, and I drove a lot of famous folks around, like Isaiah Thomas and <clears throat> Tommy Heinsohn and Charles Barkley, and I drove I drove Charles Barkley around a few times. And we kind of hit it off. I mean, like he was into gambling and so was I. And he and he wanted me to stop and get him some newspapers so he could see how his all his the college teams that he'd gambled on the night before had done and whatever. So uh, I love. Was that legal game. for him to be doing that? No, I'm sure it was not legal okay. at, all, okay. at all. And I'm sure he still does it or whatever. But um, so, you know, we we were hitting it off or you know, to, to the extent that you can with a production assistant and some famous athlete or whatever. And I already loved his basketball game because his game was like, you know, talk a lot of shit and press the pace and get up and down the court uh, and just dare everyone to keep up with him. And that's the kind of game that I like to play on my lower level. And I'd always loved him as a player. And now I liked him as a person. And Lee knew that I love Charles Barkley. So mm. I guess she told the FBI this and <laughs> they can, just, ma'am, can you think of anything that might be a lead? <laughs> well, he, he thinks Charles Barkley really presses it and he's, he admires that. So they started showing. <laughs> thank thank up. you, ma'am. That's enough. Once they knew I was in Southern California, uh, they, they showed up at the Phoenix Suns and LA Lakers game, which I attended and I was in like the second or third row. I paid for some really, <laughs> really good ticket, a really good ticket for that. But somehow I walked right by them and they never saw me, even though when I went back to my apartment and saw the game that I had taped, I showed up, uh, as the camera went back and forth down the court, you could see me, uh, but the FBI, even though they had interviewed him and asked him, you know, who I was. And he said, I don't know who the fuck that is that you're talking about. <laughs> uh, they, they, they never generated uh, um, catching me out of it, even though I think they might've been at the, at a game in Phoenix that I went where the Sonics played in Phoenix. And I was in Phoenix, the Arizona area, robbing banks uh, that week. Uh, <laughs> That's so, um, the, the way that Luke Burbank found out about Mike is because you shared some of, of the letters that Mike wrote you out of prison. Do you have any of those letters still? You know, I will, I, I, I can stay on the hunt. I, in the short notice I had, I, you know, I looked in my garage, they, they might exist in a box, but I, I just, I, I couldn't swear to it. I couldn't, I couldn't lay hands on one. But so, Mike, would you, would you, did you have a list of people that you would write letters to like weekly or daily or how did that go? No, it wasn't, there was nothing set. I mean, when, 
because I was where I was, I was writing a lot of letters. And then mm -hmm. when someone would write me back, then I would have just jump on writing them back, you know, because like, I got a fish on the line here. Someone will actually <laughs> talk right. to me. And um, then in 2005, Bill, you did an interview for Weekend America. What what made you think of doing this? So you're like, this is the best story ever. And I know this guy or or how did it come about? Let me let me pause. And if you want me to relate, I, there is a story of, of a contents of a letter that I like. I, if you want me to tell about my sharing them with Luke, you yes. may already have it from Luke. But do you want to hear any of yes, that? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, um, so I I I can't I haven't found letters yet. The reason I was sharing them with Luke is because Luke, uh, spoiler alert, also funny. I I just thought I, I I these guys I felt like these guys their senses. I mean, he's in prison and he's my my I don't know eighteen year old coworker. They're never going to meet, mm -hmm. but Luke and Mike ought to know each other. Just they should know each other. So this is so I I would get. Uh, I would get Mike's letters, and Luke is a sports fan at the level that Mike is. I'm not, but I knew enough. You know, I had been following the, the Seattle Sonics that if it was even funny to me, but I would just – what Mike would do would be to go, like, go down the roster of the Seattle Sonics <laughs> and just and just dryly – this is going to be a shock – dryly mock <laughs> uh, the various members of the team. So um, – who is it? David Wingate. I mean, you sort of have to pop, yeah. put up a visual at this point. Yeah. Uh, nice, uh, nice. Uh, was it like nice, nice fade? Um, <laughs> uh, what's his name? That word up uh, cameo. Right. Nice fade cameo. Now quit fouling Drexler every ten seconds. <laughs> and it's just the economy of words. And by the way, Mike used to write stories when we were in college. So uh, and 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 I would get to read his his fiction, and it was just. It was just the the beauty of how he would put I just imagine him just tossing these off. Like what's he doing right now? What's he looking at while he's just riffing on on Aaron Williams? Does, <laughs> does he look normal to you? Oh god. Uh, Aaron Williams. Which is a completely visual joke, but I would tell Luke and Luke would cry. Luke would have tears <laughs> from this guy who he'd never met. And I I feel like Luke had the sense of like, I gotta meet this guy. Um anyway, so that was my that was the Luke Mike connection. I don't remember. I'd have to go find out how the threads came around again. I don't remember on the top off the top of my head how you guys eventually did meet. But that was the oh, no, that's was the nature you. of Mike's letters. Just it was just, you, just Bill. entertaining me. You you uh, you set us up. It was like a Mariners date. Um, you were going to the Mariners game with your staff, I think, and uh -huh. you guys had like a couple rows or a row. Um, and you just like threw me a ticket or offered to let me buy a ticket. And I think I sat right behind Luke and he didn't even know really that I was there until I started making some comments about the game. And then he like turned around and said, Hey, are, are you Mike Frizzell? <laughs> because he just, he just recognized the tone, right? <laughs> That's impossible. No, it's not impossible. That's exactly what happened. And and I was like, yeah. And, and and so we started talking or whatever. And then we didn't like keep in touch. But like years later, when his show started in Seattle, I didn't know what was going on. And I think you told Dave that Luke had a show and Dave told me. And I started listening. And I 
started like writing on the website or sending them emails or something under my name, Drew McFrizz, my, the name that I mm-hmm. did all media under Drew McFrizz. And then he just recognized Frizz and recognized the tone. And I think he wrote me back an email one night and he goes, am I crazy or are you this dude? Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and then, okay. you know, that's how Luke and I got, got back to corresponding. I don't remember the, the origin story of, the weekend America appearance, Mike. Um, I maybe was it th- was it this book came out and I just and you know it was on mm-hmm. the subject and I just you know I thought it like I mean I do when I do an interview I try to think how am I going to relate to this person um, and so maybe this was this was right. my way of relating and I thought well that would be good radio. Do you have a better memory of how it happened than I do? I could be completely full of shit, which I will be proven if <laughs> Phyllis comes up with um, the actual tape. But what I think it was, was you had um, a, a woman from Canada who had written a book about stealing or shoplifting and um, the circumstances and the fallout from her experiences with it. And you called on me because... Uh, when we were in college, I did some shoplifting with you mm-hmm. in the building, and that was at Hoagie's Corner <laughs> in the university district. Yeah. And that's when we would go to the Hoagie's Corner. You would be wearing your bathrobe and some basketball shoes with no socks. <laughs> and we would order our sandwiches. And uh, if it if it was busy and it was starting to take too long, I would start stealing. I would yeah. start, you know. What would you steal? Um, well, uh, I'd order my sandwich, and if it took more than five minutes, I would just grab a bag of chips. And then if a couple more minutes go by, I would grab maybe some ready-made deviled eggs. And a couple more minutes go by, I'm grabbing a candy bar. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, just I felt entitled because I was a fraternity boy, you know, mm-hmm. and I was a dick. And <laughs> I was also hungry. And so I think I think you you thought... Um, that that would, you know, it would be a lighter cause, cause she was, you know, she was bringing some heavy and then I would bring yeah. a lighter bit to it. That sounds like how I might've produced that up. Yeah. <laughs> nice job by you. <laughs> <laughs> a little so, salt and sweet. <laughs> yeah. Um, will you have the, the five minutes of just you, the two of you, um, so we'll add that to the end of this. It's it's nice because it's your whole story told in five minutes instead of mm. uh, five hour parts that we're doing now. <laughs> the long version. <laughs> right. Right. All right. I don't have any more questions. Mike, do you have any more questions for Bill? Uh, no, Bill, you have any questions? Um, well, I guess a an observation that's and and a question uh i i think i took i was i as i was getting ready to talk about this with you you know obviously it's a it's a hard story it's a sad story it's a painful story and but i was being honest with myself that at the time when i first found out it wasn't oh my god you know what um, what pain is my friend suffering? Because I'm not, I guess I'm not that good a person, but also because, <laughs> because I, I, my image of Mike, this is how I, I process sort of your whole personality was that, um, 
I in in my I had you down as um yeah entitled but but because you sort of had a Bill Murray arched eyebrow look at the whole thing and that I don't think I don't think I ever pictured you suffering in my mind mm-hmm. it was it wasn't Leo DiCaprio whatever that movie is where he's getting away with everything mm-hmm. but it was it was it was that sense of like well Mike Mike is cool Mike is um I'm glad I'm not I'm, I'm not living his life but he's um, he's got it under control. Like who else could rob that many banks just because he decided to? And I'm not sure what the moral lesson is there, but um, but I just I couldn't honestly say I've been in touch with how how much you must have suffered, Mike. To me, you went from cocky in all the ways I described to incredibly uh, humble, as far as I can tell. Like that was the big change after I saw you when you came out. Is it was like two different people because you were n- n- in no way humble before. Uh, and I don't know if I, if I were to, uh, to talk with you about it, I think that, that trip from, from cocky to humble. Cause it's like, it's kind of a cliche, like, well, I was cocky and then I was laid low and now <laughs> I'm a humble man. I don't really think things work that, that way, except it really seems either you're just a, an still acting or it just seems like such a life change and sometime (laughs) i'd like to have a beer and talk about it yeah yeah i hear you bill i mean um it's uh it did it did take like completely like losing everything that i had and everything that was important to me and spending time in prison so you know what you were getting was a snapshot on either end but um but yeah, uh, I wish I were a good enough actor to <laughs> to fake the whole thing. That would be pretty amazing. But um, no, I I I totally hear what you're saying. Well, Mike, I wish you the best, and it just makes me think that why should I wish you the best just because we were in a frat together? It makes personally, it makes me, you know, wish everybody the best. People who do, um, you know, shitty things and crazy things and dangerous things, but I do wish you the best, my friend. All right, thank you, brother. Yeah, thank you so much All for right. being on. It's my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. I hear a voice. It's fainting. Two pink pills to fall asleep. Join us next week for episode two, Rhyming and Stealing with Barb Aerosmith. If you would like to get involved with the show and send Mike some questions for our week five all questions episode, um, hit us up on Facebook, uh, on the show Twitter at LRB Podcast email us at littleredbandwagon at gmail.com or send us a voicemail at 802-432-8285. I hear a voice, it's faint and weak, to paint pills to fall asleep. I hear a voice, it's faint and weak. Um, I have a question before right. we start. Um, Bill, you yeah. just, you had a show, and you interviewed Mike on it in 2005. What was the name of that? 2005. Um, was that Weekend America, Mike? Yes, when I, I was in so. LA. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, I think so. Yep. Yeah, Phyllis has been looking for that tape. Oh, we found it. Oh, good. Yeah. What led me uh, to, to bank robbery was actually watching uh, an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. And the detail that, that came through through to me in my clouded brain was the fact that uh, they mentioned that the tellers are trained to give up the money. So that started it kind of rolling around in my brain. That was news and to you. That was news to me. I, I had never considered robbing a bank uh, until until that moment. How did it happen? Um, first one, uh, I scouted a location. And once I decided to do it, I decided to, to do it right, not do a huge deal and take over and scare the heck out of everyone and, you know, have a hostage situation and all this stuff. I went in there at about 930 in the morning and and uh, laid a note on the counter implying that I had a weapon, which eventually you get sentenced for having a weapon by just implying that. Did um, you know that? No, I did not. Um, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have taken a weapon in either way. I didn't really think about at the time how much how much I might be scaring these people. But in my own mind, I knew they weren't in any danger. So that that justified it um, as far as I was concerned. But were you thinking anything during all this? What was going through your mind? When you're clouded in that drug addiction, you don't really realize that this this isn't normal. You know, this isn't right. You're just you're just feeding feeding that beast that needs to be fed every day. And and it doesn't care, and it sort of wipes away your your perception of right and wrong and what's normal and what's not normal. Now, you had a wife and a stepdaughter at the time, and you robbed 60 banks. How did you hide this from them? Well, I think people sort of believe what they want to believe, and I, I made up an entire life that I would leave for every morning and I'd come home from every night. There were many close calls. In fact, the reason I ended up being a fugitive was not because I thought the authorities were close to catching me, but because I thought my wife was close to catching me. Why did you finally turn yourself in? Um, it was pretty simple, turning myself in, because uh, my drug addiction had reached the point where I could sense that I did not have much longer to live. I was I was probably only going to live for another few weeks or a month. I was taking 16 to 24 uh, painkillers a day um, just to feel normal. So I quit the drugs, and about 10 days later, I turned myself in. I was still a little bit in, in withdrawal, but I did not want to turn myself in and go through withdrawal at the same time. So I quit the drugs, and I, and I drove up to Seattle from San Diego and uh, slid my license under the glass at the Bellevue police station and just waited for them to run my license and come out and arrest me. What was their reaction? There really wasn't a lot of reaction. Um, I can't even remember the face or demeanor of the person that, that took my license. I was so in my own world of fear, you know. Um, I knew it was coming as far as uh, I was going to have to do a lot of a lot of time and a lot of payback and and there was a lot of work ahead. But at the time, I was thinking, um, this is the only way I'm going to live. Have you thought about redemption? Uh, did, you, were you, did you turn yourself in looking for redemption? Uh, can, you, can you be redeemed? I think redemption is a word that's so huge in some ways. I mean, you hear about it in book reviews and movie trailers, you know, in a world gone mad, one man seeking redemption, you know, all that. 
having lived in my skin and gone through what I've gone through and getting to where I am in my life right now, um, I can honestly say there was no big picture for me at all. It was, it was fear-based day by day. Um, I wouldn't even say goal setting, but just survival. Um, I need to make the people in my family that, uh, hate me, tolerate me again, or make the people that tolerate me, love me again. Um, get my ex-wife and stepdaughter to stop hating me. You know, this day by day stuff that, that, uh, you're not thinking about as part of a big plan for redemption, but over a period of you know, 12 years, 13 years, it all adds up. And, and some people might see it as, well, this is a person who's been redeemed. I don't know that some of the people I scared when I was robbing banks would agree, but some people would say that redemption has been achieved. Do you feel guilty or is guilt just some other negative emotion to pile on to, to the world? <laughs> I wouldn't say that I, that I lament it every day. I can't live like that. Um, you know, that's, that's a place where, you know, um, addictions spring out of feeling guilt every day. Well, Mike, thanks for, for reliving all of this for us. You're welcome.